Help defend the church by becoming a supporter of Family Life International. Your contributions enable us to continue our work to promote the faith, defend the family and promote the sanctity of life. Make a real difference today. Go to www.familyandlife.org.uk slash donate. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Glory to you, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain where they could be alone. There in their presence he was transfigured. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. Suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared to them. They were talking with him. Then Peter spoke to Jesus. Lord, he said, it is wonderful for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking, when suddenly a bright cloud covered them with shadow. And from the cloud there came a voice which said, This is my son, the beloved. He enjoys my favor. Listen to him. When they heard this, the disciples fell on their faces, overcome with fear. But Jesus came up and touched them. Stand up, he said, do not be afraid. And when they raised their eyes, they saw no one, but only Jesus. As they came down from the mountain, Jesus gave them this order. Tell no one about the vision until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. Our Lord had taken the disciples to Caesarea Philippi and he asked them the question, who do people say the Son of Man is? And the apostles gave varying answers. Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But you, he said, who do you say I am? You who have been with me these past few years, you who have seen the miracles, you who have been present to the multiplication of blows, the healing of the sick, the restoration of sight to the blind, the healing of paralytics, the raising of the dead. Who do you say I am? And they silent, except for Simon Peter, who speaks up and says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. To which our Lord responded, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father is in heaven. My Father in heaven has told you who I am. Who am I? Who is Christ? Is he God or is he man? Well, he's both. He is God inasmuch as his person is that of the Word of God, the second person of the Blessed Trinity. The Father being the first person, 
the Holy Spirit being the third. Not that one comes before the other. They are co-eternal. They have the single nature, but each person possesses that nature in its entirety. So there was never a time when the Father was and the Son was not. The Son always was. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. So, our blessed Lord is God. Yet, at the fullness of time, he took from the womb of the Blessed Virgin flesh. And he joined to his person human nature. So that there are two natures in Christ. One divine, one mortal, one human. Joined in a single person. A person answers the question, who? Who are you? A nature answers the question, what? What are you? So we can say to Christ, who are you? He said, I am God. Who are you? can say, I'm God and I'm man. So he's not a human person, he's a divine person. Therefore, all his acts are divine, because this is a person who is the author of the act. Who steals? This person stole. Who lies? This person lies. Who sacrifices himself? This person does it. Not the nature, the person. So we can say, God died for us on the cross because the person who died was God and he died in his human nature. So Simon Peter confessed him to be God. Perhaps Simon Peter didn't understand all of this. Do we understand all of it? And then the Lord went on immediately after this confession of Peter to speak about his passion. The Son of Man is going to be handed over and Peter is appalled. Lord, this must not happen to you. At which point our Lord says, get behind me, Satan. The way you think is not God's way, but man's. And that's our problem. We do not think as God thinks. Why? Because we have not put on the fullness of Christ. And today, our problem is we're not thinking as God thinks. We're thinking as man thinks. But please, God, I'll come to that later. Our Lord then went on to say that there are some of you standing here who will not taste death until they have seen the coming of the Son of Man in glory. Six days later, a week later. St. Luke says eight days later. But it's still the same time. He takes three of them up into the mountain. And they were told, there in their presence, he was transfigured. What is this transfiguration? We're told his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzlingly white, like light. What is happening here? Our Lord was permitting his glory, his divine nature, to shine through his human nature. That's what was happening. He was confirming Peter's confession. 
But this was only the beginning. He was doing this for several reasons, but principally to confirm Peter and James and John that he was whom Peter had said he was and whom Christ himself had said he was, Son of God, God. But he was also preparing them for the scandal of the cross so that the crucifixion, as it would scandalize them, would also bring them to the realization that God died for us. But there was more. Because of his human body, he, it involved also his mystical body. So he, Christ was also foretelling that we also, if we are faithful members of his body, we also will be transfigured. We will also shine like the sun. Doesn't he say that in the Beatitudes? The righteous will shine like stars. He speaks about, in fact, St. Paul talks about, we will put on the divine glory. St. Peter speaks about that. We will put on the divine nature. We also are destined to shine as our Lord did before his apostles. But let us move on. Moses and Elijah appeared to them. Moses had died, buried on Mount Nebo. Elijah had been taken up into paradise in the whirlwind. And so, in a sense, escaped death. The scribes had asked our Lord for a sign. A sign from heaven, and the Lord said, no sign will be given, except the sign of Jonah, in other words, the depths. The king Ahab, sorry, Ahaz, King Ahaz had been asked by the prophet Isaiah, because Ahaz had this problem, which of the countries, which of the empires should he associate himself with? And the prophet said, no. Leave it. Ask God for a sign. Either from heaven, from the heights of heaven, or from the depths of hell. And he has replied hypocritically, I will not put the Lord God to the test. Because essentially, he did not want God in his business. A bit like us today. But here we have a sign from heaven, Elijah, and a sign from Sheol, Moses. That's one reason. Another reason the scribes and the Pharisees had been saying our Lord is opposed to the law. He's against God. He's blasphemer. And so when Moses appears, the lawgiver, and Moses is, shows deference to our Lord, it is evident that he cannot be against the law. And Elijah was zealous for the law. He would not tolerate someone who was a blasphemy. He would not tolerate someone who attacked God's dignity. He wouldn't tolerate. But he also is deferential. So in the appearance of these two, our Lord is showing that he, in fact, is fulfilling the law and the prophets. And that he is neither the prophet Elijah, nor John the Baptist, nor even Moses. But rather, he was the one Moses spoke of. The Lord God will raise up from among your brethren a prophet like myself, when he comes, listen to him. And of course, 
we know they wouldn't listen to him. So, Elijah and Moses are speaking to our Lord about what? About the most important thing that our Lord was going to do. Namely, die on Calvary. Because unless he died on Calvary, we would not be freed from our sins. And that's what they were discussing, if discussion is the word. That's what they were talking about. His death on Calvary. All of us were born for life. Christ alone was born to die. Peter, still recalling the passion and not liking it one little bit, suggests to make three tents. Stay here. It's safe. But at that moment, the Father himself comes. There's this cloud that covers them in a shadow. Since when clouds cover you in shadows? But that's what it says. A bright cloud covered them with shadow. And from the cloud comes the voice of the Father. Confirming what Peter had affirmed. This is my son. Not one of my sons. This is my son. The beloved. He enjoys my favor. He's one with me. Listen to him. And so the father is confirming what, the, what, the, what Moses had said. When he comes, listen to him. And the father, with these words, never speaks to us again in scripture. The father is silent. He has spoken everything. Listen to Christ. End of story. Nothing more. And when they heard that, they fell on their faces of come and etc. Our Lord touches them, they look up and they see no one but Jesus. And so they come down from the mountain. And the Lord went on to say, Tell no one about this vision until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. He comes back again to the central purpose of his presence among us, his death and resurrection. If Christ has not been risen from the dead, says St. Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're the most miserable of people. If Christ has not been raised, we are still in our sins. If Christ has not been raised, we have proved to be perjurers. I believe Christ has risen from the dead. I believe also that if I die in Christ Jesus, I will go to heaven and I will shine as brightly as the sun because he has promised it. I believe that whatever I suffer in this world is nothing compared with the glory that is to be revealed. St. Paul says, I, count, I consider my sufferings as nothing. In fact, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings because I'm able to make up what is still lacking in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of this church. He says, St. Paul, we have been trained to carry the weight of eternal glory by the sufferings of this world. Why are we afraid of suffering? We're not, we may not like it. I certainly don't like it. But if that's what God has given, if we accept, says Job, good things in the hand of the Lord, 
Shouldn't we accept evil too? God cannot give us something that is injurious to our eternal salvation. It's impossible. Everything God gives us, good or bad, is good for us. If we lose sight of this truth, we become worldlings. We become as the heathen. Now, we have a problem. In our world, very few people believe. Few, of course, is relative. In the church, in the Catholic church, we have many who are Catholic in name only. She knows they fall. Yes, they profess to be Catholic. They go through the rituals, 10% of them. But do, they, do we really believe what the church teaches? I will go further and I'll say, sadly, that many of those who are in leadership in the church do not believe. And I'm not judging them. We can make that statement when we look at their actions. Looking at the actions will tell you what a person believes. We have a problem. It's called coronavirus. But we only have a problem if we don't believe. If we believe, we have no problem. We know from scripture, from the prophets, and certainly we know from the saints, the lives of the saints, that when God wishes to punish his people, he sends them famine, war, pestilence. Book of the Apocalypse. He also sends them bad leaders. What do bad leaders do? Well, our Lord spoke of them. He says they are, they are wolves in sheep's clothing. It's the Lord speaking, not me. That's what he said. So we might have wolves in shepherd's clothing as well. Okay, right, let's go. Last Friday, not Friday before, the 28th of February, was the feast of the martyrs of the pestilence of Alexandria. The martyrs of the pestilence of Alexandria. Alexandria in Egypt. The year was, well, the, the, the pestilence covered the whole of the Roman Empire. So all the way from Germany, past Germany, all the way to um, Egypt going down to across the desert, North Africa. From 249 to 263 AD, 3rd century. And it's quite by accident I discovered this, actually. Eusebius is a church historian, the first church historian. And in his book, The History of the, of the Church, History of the Catholic Church, he mentions it in the second chapter. Um, and he quotes Saint Dionysius, who was the bishop of Alexandria, and Saint Cyprian, Cyprian, who, was, who followed him. And they are describing what it was like in the third century. Apart from the fact there were persecutions, the heathen, the pagans, hated the Christians. 
Catholics. When we talk at that period, there were only Catholics. Everybody was a Catholic. All Christians were Catholic. There was no others. But there was problems in the city. Great violence. In fact, St. Dionysius said, it was safer to travel from one end, from the eastern part of the empire to the west. That is, from Hungary to Spain, than to cross the street in Alexandria. So the plague, the pestilence came and it struck the Roman Empire. And it was bad. In Rome alone, 5,000 people died in one day in the year 261. Now, in those days, there was a problem because they didn't have antibiotics, the medicine was rather primitive, etc., etc. And not only that, the hygiene was a problem because the plague struck mostly in the cities because people were cramped together, the streets were narrow, the hygiene was zero, sewers were open, etc., etc. So, of course, it's going to be worse. Anyway, the plague struck. And people became very afraid. They were afraid of each other. Sounds familiar? <laughs> so, in our family, the first person to show sign of the plague, they would throw them into the streets. It didn't matter whether it was father, mother, wife, son, daughter. It didn't make any difference. You had the plague, out you go. And so you had these people, and, and it, was, it was virulent. So people were dying within a few days. And so you had these corpses in the streets. And you had people who were sick lying in the streets. What happened? The Christians, the Catholics went out and ministered to those sick people. They took them and looked after them and let them die as a human being, human dignity. And they buried the dead. And what happened? They caught the plague as well. And they died. Um, is there anybody here who's not going to die? They died. But they are considered martyrs because they, were, they sacrificed themselves in charity out of love for their neighbor, their brother and their sister who was dying in the streets. And they considered martyrs. And there's a feast day, the 28th of February, not in the universal calendar but in the Alexandrian calendar. That's what. A hundred years before that, there was another plague in the Roman Empire. This plague was called the Antonine Plague, after the emperor Marcus Aurelius. And Marcus Aurelius was a pagan. He himself called the plague. And it was sweeping across the empire. Again, it was Christians who came to the assistance. But Marcus Aurelius, when he was dying, he said, this plague is not as bad as what is going on in the empire. The lying, the falsehoods, the theft, the perjury, the fornication, the adultery. He says, this is far worse than this plague. A pagan said that, Marcus Aurelius. You think that's bad? Let's move on. And I can name many other plagues. But another one is the bubonic plague, which struck Europe in the 14th century, 13, 40, 40s, 50s, 60s, middle of the 14th century. 
that came again, like the others, from the east. And it's this plague, the bubonic plague, was deadly. How so? Because it was transmitted by fleas. And people again didn't know that. But the flea, which of course was transported by rats, and the rats liked to go to ships, and when the ship landed in port, the rats would jump off, run ashore. That's what rats do. <laughs> and the fleas would bite, and people would get sick. Now, interestingly, when the flea bit, there, as you know, like the mosquito, there will be a little raised um, bump. And for the bubonic plague, there were little dots around it to give you a little ring. And you'd get the flu symptoms, etc. And that's where we get the nursery rhyme. A ring, a ring of roses, a pocket full of poses, a tissue, a tissue, we all fall down. Because that's what happened when you had the bubonic plague. You had the little ring, the, the posies were little flowers people kept hoping it would cure it, which it didn't and they'd fall down. So, there was also something that Beyond Plague did. It would also give you large swellings from the lymph glands, which would burst, and you'd get what is called a bobo. It's an English word. It's bobo. B-U-B-O. So we all know what it is, right? Study Latin, it makes you know a lot of things. So the bubonic plague was a major disaster because it affected China, it affected the Turkish, the Ottoman Empire, well, it wasn't Ottoman yet, but the Turkish Empire, and of course it entered Europe. Interestingly, it came up through Italy, the seaports. And so it reached, eventually it reached England. But what did it do? Again, you only had a few days. And, and I remember doing this in history in, in Form 2. You know, people would have these red crosses on their doors saying this house had the plague. And they would often nail people in there. So if the plague was in that house, they'd nail it so you couldn't get out. But there was something else happening. People with the plague who had not looked after them, they would go where? They would go to the monasteries. And the, some of the monasteries and friaries were good. They would open their doors to these people who were sick with the plague. And of course, the good monks, in turn, would catch it. And they would die as well. And we'd have priests who, when they saw a house with a cross, they would go there to minister to the sick. Some of them would catch it, and they would die as well. But there were others, including some bishops, who plague, they would go over there. <laughs> 
And so when the, when the plague ended, when the, the bubonic plague, the Black Death ended, half, a third to a half of Europe's population were dead. Who survived? The people who went over there. In other words, people who really believed died. But they didn't die in vain. They died because they believed what our Lord said. I was sick, you visited me. I was in need, you came to my assistance. And so they died as martyrs. Is there anybody here who's not going to die? The bubonic plague took, let's say, half of Europe. It, the consequences were that when the plague abated, there was now a problem with labor, because it so happened, in fact, that most of the people who died were from the cities, but in the countryside, it was a little better. And so it ended basically serfdom, and the, labor, the, the wages that the serfs got improved. There was now a need to rebuild the society. Unfortunately, a lot of the clergy were dead. The good clergy were dead. And so schools were set up to, to train priests as quickly as possible. And anybody who came was welcome. Well, you know what's going to happen. That in turn would lead to the Reformation because at the time, 100, uh, 150 years later, Luther would be complaining about the quality of priests, not that he was any better. But he was saying that these people, these priests are just corrupt, they're looking after themselves, they only want interest in money, they don't interest in souls, and so on, and so on, and so on. The Reformation would follow as a consequence. There were other plagues, but I can't go through them all. 100 years ago, there was the Spanish flu. And interestingly, this, the influenza, the, the influenza, only got its name because Spain was the only. Well, when it appeared, when the, the influenza appeared and was starting to kill off people, all the governments were silent. They put censorship, no reporting. Why? Because they, they didn't want panic. And the other thing was. The influenza was being spread by the troops who were traveling all over the place. That was the vector. The, the soldiers and sailors, they were the ones spreading it, not intentionally, but because they had it. And of course, there was, the medication was primitive and so on. But Spain, which was not a belligerent in the war, Spain was neutral, was the only place where there was no censorship, and the Spanish press reported it, and so it Came, it was called the Spanish flu, but it was everywhere. The mortality rate was about 10%. That means that every 10 persons reported, one would die. We come to Corona. It's a paired, God knows from where, but we know it's man-made. We know that there's panic everywhere, stockpiling, people are buying things and stocking up in case they get it. We know that in Italy, for instance, whole countries have been, um, whole provinces have been cordoned off, cities are cordoned off, they did that in China to contain it. 
But what's interesting, in China, anybody who has a sneeze or cough or sniffle, pow! Goodbye. That's what they're doing. But didn't I say the same thing happened in Alexandria? So why shouldn't it happen? We're all flesh and blood the same. None of us is exempt. Huh? So, so we have this virus. Its mortality rate is 3.5%. The Spanish flu was 10%, 1 in 10. Or, if you like, 10 in 100. Coronavirus is 3%, 3 in 100. Why are we afraid? Now, in all of this, in fact, didn't we have swine flu about 10 years ago? Mortality rate. I think it was one, I think, I was one or two percent. It passed. So, we have a situation now where governments are telling the church what to do. And we heard this interesting notice. I'll put a question. I think everybody knows what I think, so I won't even say. I'll put a question. Christ our Lord is the Lord of life. Yes or no? Yes. When he touch the leper, and what happens if you touch a leper? The chances are you'll become, uh, you, you, you'll catch it. He touched the leper. Did he catch lips? And wasn't the leper healed? The man who was blind, they brought him to him in Capernaum. And what did he do? He took the man aside. He took his saliva and he put it on the man's eyes. And said, what do you see? The man said, I see men walking, but they look like trees. So the Lord took some more. What do you see? He said, I see them walking, men. He can see clearly. Our Lord did that to show us their degrees of faith. You half believe you'll only see men like trees walking. The man who had the impediment in the tongue, what did our Lord do? Didn't he take his saliva and touch the man's tongue? Was the man healed? Yes or no? The man born blind, didn't our Lord spit on the ground, make a paste, put it on his eyes? Was he healed? And what did the man say? Never since the world began has it ever been heard that anyone born blind receive his sight. What about the woman with the hemorrhage? If I touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. She touched the hem of his garment. Do we believe that Christ is present in the Eucharist? Is he present body, blood, soul, and divinity? So if we touch him, aren't we going to be healed? Can we believe that in receiving the Eucharist, we can receive a death sentence? I say that our leaders do not believe for the simple reason of things they've done. And I'll mention one last case, because time is against me. That of Lourdes. I've been to Lourdes on many occasions. And there, the baths are filled in the morning. 
And every kind of disease is washed in those waters. The waters, the waters are not changed. It's the same water from morning till evening. So people with cancers, with skin diseases, people with flu, and you name it, any kind of disease, everybody goes and they bathe in that same water. And do you, the, peop, the helpers, the people who help the people into the waters, do you know what they do at the end of it? They will take a glass and dip it into that water, which so many people have bathed in, and they will drink it. It has yuck value. I admit, it is not a pleasant thing to even think about. But they have faith. And if any one of those people had died, you bet the newspapers would be telling us about it. So when the authorities close the bars, I'm asking myself, this act tells me only one thing. You don't believe. You don't believe that God can preserve those who believe in him. And even if the person contracts a disease and dies, the person will die anyway. We are all under a sentence of death. And as far as I'm concerned, the only thing to do is to die good death, die, namely to die in a state of grace. If we die in a state of grace, we go straight to heaven. If we're not, there are alternatives. Alternative arrangements have been made. It's a, for me, it's as simple as that. I believe that Christ is truly present in the Eucharist. I firmly believe that. I just regret that I cannot adore him as I would. Because my joints do not bend as I would like them to. But I long to put my knees on the ground and to bow and say, My Lord and my God, I believe. Help my unbelief. If we allow this virus to destroy our faith, what did St. Paul say? Letter to Timothy. With me, bear the hardships for the sake of the good news, relying on the power of God who has saved us and called us to be holy. He abolished death and he has proclaimed life and immortality through the good news. If we do not believe, we will not proclaim the good news. We will be thinking like worldlings, like the heathen, like the pagans. And we will be afraid. Afraid of the disease and afraid of each other. And ultimately, afraid of God's justice. No, God loves us and God will always defend, protect those who love him. Through the intercession of Mary Immaculate, may we all, in fact, prove our love for God, especially in the times in which we live. And to Christ our Lord be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This MP3 recording has been made available by Family Life International. Help us to make many more available in order to promote our Catholic faith. Go to www.familyandlife.org.uk and donate today. Mm -hmm.